Book One, Chapter Eight of *The Mill on the Floss*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Daisy Fifty Five. *The Mill on the Floss* by George Eliot. Book One, Chapter Eight. Of the boy and the girl. Mr. Tulliver shows his weaker side. Suppose Sister Clegg should call her money in. It'll be very awkward for you to have to raise five hundred pounds now," said Mrs. Tulliver to her husband that evening, as she took a plaintive review of the day. Miss Tulliver had lived thirteen years with her husband. Yet she retained in all the freshness of her early married life a facility of saying things which drove him in the opposite direction to the one she desired. Some minds are wonderful for keeping their bloom in this way, as a patriarchal goldfish apparently retains to the last its useful illusion that it can swim in a straight line beyond the encircling glass. Miss Tulliver was an amiable. Fish of this kind, and after running her head against the same resistant medium for thirteen years, would go at it again today with undulatricity. This observation of hers tended directly to convince Mister Tulliver that it would not be at all awkward for him to raise five hundred pounds. And when Missus Tulliver became rather pressing to know how he would raise it without mortgaging the mill and the house, which he said. He never would mortgage, since nowadays people were none so ready to lend money without security. Mister Tulliver, getting warm, declared that Missus Clegg might not do as she liked without calling in her money. She should pay it in whether or not. He was not going to be beholden to his wife's sister. When a man had married into a family where there was a whole little woman, he might have plenty to put up with. If he chose, but Mister Tulliver did not choose. Missus Tulliver cried a little in a trickling, quiet way as she put on her nightcap, but presently sank into a comfortable sleep, lulled by the thought that she would talk everything over with her sister Poulette tomorrow, when she was to take the children to Garum Ferrers to tea. Not that she looked forward to any distinct issue from that talk, but it seemed impossible that past events should be so obstinate as to remain unmodified when they were complained against. Her husband lay awake rather longer, for he too was thinking of a visit he should pay on the morrow, and his ideas on the subject were not of so vague and soothing a kind as those of his amiable partner. Mister Tulliver, when under the influence of a strong feeling, had a promptitude in action that seemed inconsistent with that painful sense of the complicated, puzzling nature of human affairs under which his more dispassionate deliberations were conducted. But it is really not improbable that there was a direct relation between these apparently contradictory phenomena. Since I have observed that for getting a strong impression that a skin is tangled, there is nothing like snatching hastily at a single thread. It was owing to this promptitude that Mister Tulliver was on horseback soon after dinner the next day. He was not dyspeptic; 
and on his way to Bassett to see his sister Moss and her husband. For having made up his mind irrevocably that he would pay Mrs. Clegg her loan of five hundred pounds, it naturally occurred to him that he had a promissory note for three hundred pounds lent to his brother-in-law Moss. And if the said brother-in-law could manage to pay in the money within a given time, it would go far to lessen the felicitous air of inconvenience which Mr. Tulliver's spirited step might have worn in the eyes of weak people who require to know precisely how a thing is to be done before they are strongly confident that it will be easy. For Mr. Tulliver was in a position neither new nor striking, but, like other everyday things, sure to have a cumulative effect that will be felt in the long run. He was held to be a much more substantial man than he really was, and as we are all apt to believe that the world believes in us, it was his habit to think of failure and run with the same sort of remote piety with which a spare, long-necked man hears that his plethoric, short-necked neighbor is stricken with apoplexy. He had been always used to hear pleasant jokes about his advantages as a man who worked his own mill and owned a pretty bit of land, and these jokes naturally kept up his sense that he was a man of considerable substance. They gave a pleasant flavor to his glass on a market day, and if it had not been for the recurrence of half-yielding payments, Mr. Tulliver would really have forgotten that there was a mortgage of two thousand pounds on his very desirable freehold. That was not altogether his own fault, since one of the thousand pounds was his sister's fortune, which he had to pay on her marriage, and a man who has neighbors that will go to law with him is not likely to pay off his mortgages, especially if he enjoys the good opinion of acquaintances who want to borrow a hundred pounds on security too lofty to be represented by parchment. Our friend Mr. Tolliver had a good-natured fibre about him, and did not like to give harsh refusals even to his sister, who had not only come into the world in that superfluous way characteristics of sisters, creating a necessity for mortgages, but had quite thrown herself away in marriage, and had crowned her mistakes by having an eighth baby. On this point Mr. Tolliver was conscious of being a little weak, but he apologized to himself by saying that poor Gritty had been a good-looking wench before she married Moss. He would sometimes say this even with a slight tremendousness in his voice. But this morning he was in a mood more becoming a man of business, and in the course of his ride along the Bassett lanes, with their deep ruts, lying so far away from a market town that the labor of drawing produce and manure was enough to take away the best part of the profits on such poor land as that parish was made of. He got up a due amount of irritation against Moss as a man without capital, who, if Moraine and Blight was abroad, was sure to have his share of them, and who, the more you try to help him out of the mud, will sink the further in. It would do him good rather than harm now, if he were obliged to raise this three hundred pounds. It would make him look about him better, and not act so foolishly about his war this year as he did the last. In fact, Mr. Tolliver had been too easy with his brother-in-law, and because he had let the inches run on for two years, Moss was likely enough to think that he would never be troubled about the principal. But Mr. Tolliver was determined not to encourage such shifling people any longer. 
and a ride along the vast lanes were not likely to innovate a man's resolution by softening his temper. The deep-trodden hoof-marks made in the muddiest winters of days gave him a shake now and then which suggested a rash but stimulating snarl at the father of lawyers, who, whether by means of his hoof or otherwise, had doubtless something to do with this state of the roads, and the abundance of foul land and neglected fences that met his eyes, though they made no part of his brother's moss farm, strongly contributed to his dissatisfaction that unlucky agriculturist. If this wasn't moss follow, it might have been. Bassett was all alike. It was a beggarly parish, in Mr. Tulliver's opinion, and his opinion was certainly not groundless. Bassett had a poor soil, poor roads, a poor non-resident landlord, a poor non-resident vicar, and rather less than half a curate, also poor. If any one strongly impressed with the power of the human mind to be triumphed over circumstances will contend that the parishioners of Bassett might nevertheless have been a very superior class of people. I have nothing to urge against that abstract proposition. I only know that, in point of fact, the Bassett mind was in strict keeping with its circumstances. The muddy lanes, green or clayey, that seemed to the unaccustomed eye to lead nowhere but into each other, did really lead, with patience, to a distant high road, but there were many feet in Bassett which they led more frequently to a center of dissipation, spoken of formerly as the Marcus O'Gramby, but among intimates as Dickinson a large low room with a sandy floor a cold scent of tobacco modified by undetected beer dregs mr dixon leaned against the doorpost with melancholy pimple face looking as irreverent to the daylight as a last night's guttered candle all this may not seem a very seductive form of temptation but the majority of men in Bassett found it faultily alluring when encountered on their road toward four o'clock on a wintry afternoon. And if any wife in Bassett wished to indicate that her husband was not a pleasure-seeking man, she could hardly do it more emphatically than by saying that he didn't spend a shilling at Dickinson from one Whitsonside to another. Miss Moss had said that of her husband more than once. When her brother was in a mood to find fault with him, as he certainly was today. And nothing could be less pacifying to Mr. Tulliver than the behavior of the farm-yard gate, which he no sooner attempted to push open with his riding stick than it acted as a gate without the upper hinge are known to do, to the pearl of shins, whether equine or human. He was about to get down and lead his horse through the damp dirt of the hollow farmyard, shadowed drearily by the large half-timber buildings, but up to the long line of tumble-down dwelling houses standing on a raised causeway. But the timely appearance of a cowboy saved him that frustration of a plan he had determined on, namely, not to get down from his horse during this visit. If a man means to be hard, let him keep in his saddle and speak from that height above the level of pleading eyes and with the command of a distant horizon miss moss heard the sound of the horse's feet and when her brother rode up was already outside the kitchen door 
with a half-weary smile on her face, and a black-eyed baby in her arms. Miss Moss's face bore a faded resemblance to her brother's baby little fat hand, pressed against her cheek, seemed to show more strikingly that the cheek was faded. Brother, I am glad to see you, she said in an affectionate tone. I didn't look for you today. How do you do? Oh, pretty well, Mrs. Moss, pretty well, answered the brother, with cool deliberation, as if it were rather too forward of her to ask that question. She knew at once that her brother was not in a good mood. He never called her Miss Moss except when he was angry, and when they were in company. But she thought it was in the order of nature that people who were poorly off should be snubbed. Miss Moss did not take her stand on the equality of the human race. She was a patient, prolific, loving-hearted woman. Your husband isn't in the house, I suppose, said, added Mr. Tulliver after a grave pause, during which four children had run out, like chickens whose mother had been suddenly in eclipse behind a hen coop. No, said Mrs. Moss. But he's only in the potato field yonders. Georgie, run to the far close in a minute and tell fathers your uncle's come. You'll get down, brother, won't you? And take something? No, no, I can't get down. I must be going home again directly, said Mr. Tolliver, looking at the distance. And how's Mrs. Tolliver and the children, said Mrs. Moss, humbly, not daring to press her invitation. Oh, pretty well. Tom's going to a new school at midsummer. A deal of expense to me. It's bad work for me, lying out all my money. I wish you'd be so good as let the children come and see their cousins some day. My little Ewans want to see their cousin Maggie so as never was, and me her godmother, and so fond of her. There's nobody who'll make a bigger fuss about her, or going to what they've got. And I know she likes to come, for she's a loving child, and how quick and clever she is, to be sure. If Mrs. Moss had been one of the most astute women in the world, instead of being one of the simplest, she could have thought of nothing more likely to propitiate her brother than his praise of Maggie. He seldom found any one volunteering praise of the little wench. It was usually left entirely to himself to insist on her merits. But Maggie always appeared in the most amiable light at her aunt's moss. It was her ostasia where she was out of the reach of law. If she upset anything, dirty her shoes, or tore her frock, these things were matters, of course, at her aunt's moss. In spite of himself, Mr. Tulliver's eyes got milder, and he did not look away from his sister as he said, Hey, she's fonder of you than all the other aunts. I think she takes after our family, not the bit different mothers in her. Ma says she's just like what I used to be, said Mrs. Moss, though I was never so quick and fond of the books. But I think Lizzie's like her. She's sharp. Come in, Lizzie, my dear, and let your uncle see you. He hardly knows you. You grow so fast. Lizzie, a black-eyed child of seven, looked very shy when her mother drew her forward, for the small mosses were much in awe of their uncle from Docolette Mill. She was inferior enough to Maggie in fire and strength of expression to make the resemblance between the two entirely flattering to Mr. Tulliver's fatherly love. Hey, they're a bit alike, he said, looking kindly at the little figure in the sore pinafore. They both take after our mother, 
You've got enough for girls, Gritty, he added in a tone half compassionate, half reproachful. For them, bless them, said Mrs. Moffat, for sighs, stroking Lizzie's hair on each side of her face. As many as there's boys, they've got a brother apiece. Eh, but they must turn out and fend for themselves, said Mr. Moss, feeling that his severity was relaxing and trying to brace it by throwing out a wholesome hint. They mustn't look too hanging on their brothers. No, I hope their brothers are loved, the poor things, and remember they came all one father and mother. The lads'll never be the poor for that, said Mrs. Moth, flashing out with her timidity, like a half-smothered fire. Mr. Tulliver gave his horse a little stroke on the flank, then checked it, and said angrily, Stand still with you, much to the astonishment of that innocent animal. And the more there is of them, the more they must love one another, Miss Moss went on, looking at her children with didactic purpose. But she turned toward her brother again to say, No, but what I hope your boy will always be good to his sister, though there is but two of them like you and me, brother. The arrow went straight to Mr. Tulliver's heart. He had not a rapid imagination, but the thought of Maggie was very near to him, and he was not long in seeing its relationship to his own sister side by side with Tom's relation to Maggie. Would the little wench ever be poorly off, and Tom rather hard upon her? Hey, hey, gritty, said the miller with a new softness in his tone, but I've always done what I could for you, he added, as if vindicating himself from a reproach. I'm not denying that, brother. And I'm always ungrateful. And I'm not always ungrateful, said the poor Mrs. Moss, too fraggled by toil and children to have strength left for any pride. But here's the father. What a while you've been, Moss. Wow, do you call it, said Mr. Moss, feeling out of breath and injured. I've been running all the way. Won't you light, Mr. Tulliver? Well, I'll just get down and have a beetle talk with you in the garden, said Mr. Tulliver thinking that he should be more likely to show a due spirit of resolve if his sister were not present. He got down and passed with Mr. Moss into the garden, toward an old yew-tree arbor, while his sister stood tapping her baby on the back and looking wistfully after them. Their entrance into the yew-tree arbor surprised several fowls that were recreated themselves by scratching deep holes in the dusty ground, and at once took flight with much potter and crackling. Mr. Tulliver sat down on a bench, and tapping the ground curiously here and there with a stick, as if he suspected some hollowness, opened the conversation by observing, with something like a snarl in his tone. Why, you've got wheat again in that corner close, I see, and never a bit of dressing on it. You'll do no good with it this year. Mr. Moss, who, when he married Mrs. Tulliver, had been regarded as the bucket of Bassett, now wore a beard nearly a week old, and had a depressed, unexpected air of machine horse. He answered in a patient, grumbling tone, Why, poor farmers like me must do as they can. They must leave it to them as have got money to play with, to put half as much into ground as they mean to get it out. I don't know who should have money to play with, if it isn't them as can borrow money without paying interest, said Mr. Tulliver, who wished to get into a slight quarrel, it was the most natural and easy introduction to calling in money. 
I know I'm behind with the interest, said Mr. Moss, but I was so unlucky with the wool last year, and what with the missus being laid up so, things have gone awkward, no unusual. Hey, snarled Mr. Carr, there's folks as things all always go awkward with empty sacks, you'll never stand upright. Well, I don't know what fault you've got to find with me, Mr. Tolliver, said Mr. Moss, deprecatingly. I know that isn't a day labor works harder. What's the use of that, said Mr. Tolliver sharply, when a man marries and got no capital to work as far, but his wife did a fortune. I was against it from the first. But you neither of you listen to me, and I can't lie out all my money any longer, for I've got to pay five hundred or quid Miss Clary, and there's to be time and expense to me. I should find myself short, even saying I got back all as is my own. You must look about and see how you can pay me with the three hundred pound. Well, if that's what you mean, said Mr. Moss, looking blankly before him, you better be sold up and hard done with it. I must part with the every air of stock I've got to pay you and the landlord too. Poor relations are undeniably irritating. Their existence is so entirely uncalled for on our part. And they are almost always very faulty people. Mr. Tulliver had succeeded in getting quite as much irritated with Mr. Moss as he had desired. And he was able to say angrily, rising from his seat, Well, you must do as you can. I can't find money for everybody else as well as myself. I must look to my own business and my own family. I can't lie out all my money any longer. You must raise it as quick as you can. Mr. Tulliver walked abruptly out of the arbor as he uttered the last sentence, and without looking around at Mr. Moss, went on to the kitchen door, where the eldest boy was holding his horse, and his sister was waiting in a state of wandering alarm, which was not without its alleviations, for Baby was making pleasant gurgling sounds, and performing a great deal of finger practice on the faded face. Miss Moss had eight children, but could never overcome a regret that the twins had not lived. Mr. Moss thought their removal was not without its consolation. "'Won't you come in, brother?' she said, looking anxiously at her husband, who was walking slowly up while Mr. Tolliver had his foot already in the stirrups. "'No, no. Good-bye,' he said, turning his horse's head and riding away." No man could feel more resolute till he got outside the yard gate and a little way along the deep rutted lane, but before he reached the next turning, which would take him out of sight of the dilapidated farm buildings, he appeared to be smitten by some sudden thought. He checked his horse and made it stand still in the same spot for two or three minutes, during which he turned his head from side to side in a melancholy way, as if he were looking at some painful object on more sides than one. Evidently, after his fit of promptitude, Mr. Tolliver was relapsing into the sense that this is a puzzling world. He turned his horse and rode slowly back, giving vent to the climax of feeling which had determined this movement by saying out loud, as he struck his horse, Poor little wench! She'll have nobody but Tom. Be like when I'm gone. Mr. Tulliver's return into the yard was descried by several young mosses, who immediately ran in with exciting news to their mother, 
so that Miss Moss was again on the doorstep when her brother rode up. She had been crying, but was rocking baby to sleep in her arms now, and made no ostentatious show of sorrow as her brother looked at her, but merely said, The father's gone to the field again, if you want him, brother. No, Gritty, no, said Mr. Tolliver in a gentle tone. Don't you fret, that's all. I'll make a shift without the money a bit, only you must be as clever and contriving as you can. Miss Moss' tears came again at this unexpected kindness, and she could say nothing. Come, come, the little wench shall come and see you. I'll bring her and Tom some day before he goes to school. You mustn't fret. I'll always be a good brother to you. Thank you for that word, brother, said Mrs. Moss, drying her tears, then turning to Lizzie, she said, Run now and fetch the colored egg for Cousin Maggie. Lizzie ran in and quickly reappeared with a small paper parcel. It's boiled hard, brother, and colored with thrums. Very pretty. It was done on purpose for Maggie. Will you please to carry it in your pocket? Hey, hey, said Mr. Tolliver, putting it carefully in his side pocket. Goodbye. And so the respectable miller returned along the Bassett lanes rather more puzzled than before as to the ways and means, but still with the sense of a danger escaped. It had come across his mind that if he were hard upon his sister, it might somehow tend to make Tom hard upon Maggie at some distant day, when her father was no longer there to take her part. For simple people, like our friend Mr. Tolliver, are apt to clothe unpeachable feelings in an erroneous ideals, and this was his confused way of explaining to himself that his love and anxiety for the little wench had given him a new sensibility toward his sister. End of Book 1, Chapter 8 Recording by Daisy 55 The Mill on the Floss by George Eliot